Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Dan Rogers at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to church. As always, it's just fantastic to see each and every one of you here tonight. I hope you came expectant and ready to hear from God, because tonight we're starting a brand new series called The Surrendered Life. You know, the idea of surrendering to something or someone else is just a huge struggle for us. It goes against everything that our culture tells us is for our good. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And when we come to a topic of surrender, that becomes really obvious. That's difficult for us to navigate sometimes. It continually brings us back to a place of trust and submission. And we're not always good at that. It's not natural for us. It's counterintuitive. I remember a young lady that I journeyed with for about six months. She'd grown up in a Christian family. She'd always believed in God, but that's about as far as it went. She was culturally Christian is the way that I would describe her. Anyway, by the time she was about 22, her life was a mess. God really wasn't a part of her life at all. Her boyfriend had just kicked her out, like literally changed the locks and chucked all her stuff on the curb. So it was, a, it was a really rough time for her. She gathers up her stuff and she's driving back to her parents' house. But on the way, she just happens to drive by our church. And while she's driving, she hears this voice. And it tells her to go inside, so she does. She walks through the door comes into my office, sits down, and just starts bawling out her, her eyes out. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little confused. I had no idea who she was, what she was doing in my office. She didn't say anything. She just came in and started crying. I'm not the most empathetic person. It's a little, I was out of my depth, if I'm being honest with you. I didn't know what was going on. But eventually, we got chatting And we had the most amazing conversation about the gospel and the Father's heart to protect us and actually lead us into joy. It was an amazing conversation. I started out really confused and kind of walked away going, wow, that was an amazing God moment. She came to church that Sunday. She ended up joining our connect group. And it was so obvious that God was knocking on the door of her heart. But the thing that stopped her again and again was surrender. Surrender. She believed. She'd experienced some of the goodness of God, but she wanted it on her terms. Every time we came to a passage of Scripture in small group or whatever, every time we came to a passage of Scripture that she didn't like, she'd say things you know, like, if that's who God really is, then He's not a God of love. And I don't want to follow that kind of God. And I remember every time she used to say that, I'd just cringe on the inside. Because she'd fallen into the trap of thinking that God was somehow answerable to her. So if he doesn't fit within the parameters she's given him, if he doesn't tick every box she's decided he needs to tick, then he's not good, he's not God, and he's not worthy of her faith. That's essentially what she was saying, right? And it's an incredibly easy place to be. But the biggest problem with that kind of thinking is that it's actually self-defeating. Because if God is really answerable to you, and if God really does have to tick every box that you place before him, he's not God, you are. 
And so I would say, what, what's the point? What hope is there in a God who's answerable to me? How does that help me? How does that even work? But it's a trap that we fall into all the time. His thoughts are higher. His ways are higher. And we struggle with that. It makes us uncomfortable if we're honest. So we try to bring him down to our level. We try to shape him according to our plans, our ideas, our ways. And it just doesn't work. God will not be put in a box. It's not how this faith thing, this relationship operates. I'm going to see some of that tonight. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 27. Michael is going to read the scripture for us tonight. So bless you, brother. Go for it. A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 to 27. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Thank you. It's a pretty challenging passage of Scripture. We pick it up and we immediately see, because he says from that time, we immediately see that this passage is actually connected to the one that came before it. So if you go to the passage before it, you will remember the story. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, oh, you know, people say that you're Elijah or John the Baptist or, or one of the prophets. But Jesus says to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you've got to understand how monumental that moment was. They'd been with Jesus for a while now. They'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him unpack the scriptures in a way that no one else could. They knew without a shadow of doubt there's something special about this guy. But up until that moment... And Peter makes this declaration of faith. The disciples still had no idea who Jesus really was. And yet Peter changes all of that as he boldly declares, you are the Messiah. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a rabbi, a teacher. You're the son of God in human flesh. You're the savior of the world. Incredible declaration of faith. In fact, Jesus says that flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, God is the one who gave you the eyes to see me for who I truly am. But now that you know who I am, 
This is the key for us in our passage tonight. Now that you know who I am, you need to understand why I'm here. Do you understand that? That's the context for our passage. So we get to verse 21, and Jesus begins to do that. He begins to point his disciples towards the cross, because that's why he came. Ultimately, that's it. It says he began to show them, because Jesus knew this was going to be a process. He knew that he was going to face opposition. He knew it would take them a while to come to grips with what he was saying, because from a human point of view, that's crazy. That just doesn't make sense. Imagine what the disciples must have been thinking. Jesus, what are you doing? Things are going great. People are coming from everywhere. They want to crown you king. We're finally gaining momentum. It's working. We're growing. Why why would you want to mess with that? See, the disciples were thinking about a revolution. Jesus had his eyes firmly fixed on the cross. That's why they're so, they miss each other so much. For that to make sense, you've got to understand the Jews had a completely different picture. Now, they thought that the Messiah was going to come as a conquering king. They thought the Messiah was going to overthrow the Romans and return the people of Israel to their former glory. It would be like David all over again. That's the picture they have in their mind. That's what they're expecting when they think the Messiah is coming. And Jesus is saying... Nope, I haven't come to conquer. Actually, this might come as a shock to you, I've come to die. You're thinking about an earthly kingdom, but I'm here to build something that will last for eternity. I'm here to set the captives free, and I'm not going to do it with a sword. I'm going to do it on a cross. That's just some serious out-of-the-box thinking right there. But let's be honest, that's hard to get your mind around. Only God would come up with a plan to save the world by dying on a cross. I guarantee you, you could ask a thousand people, you could do this tomorrow, probably nobody will, but you could. You could go to the shops and you could ask a hundred people and not one of them would say, yep, that's the way. That's, that's how I would think that God would want to save the world. It's just, it's not in here. It doesn't make sense to us. God's ways are not our ways. And even though I'm grateful for that, man, it makes it hard to understand sometimes. What is he doing? From a human point of view, this doesn't make sense. So Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Your Bible say, far be it from you. That's what it says. But actually the Greek says this, God forbid it. That's what Peter was actually literally saying. God forbid this shall ever happen to you. Now, can I, I think we can all agree. That's a little ironic, considering the amazing declaration of faith that he's just made, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here he is rebuking him. In fact, he says, God forbid it. Has, has he forgotten that he's actually talking to God? Is he asking Jesus to forbid himself? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it gives us an insight into Peter's state of mind. It just it's white noise. No way, Jesus. That's not in the plan. You're going to be king. You're not going to suffer and die. I mean, how are you supposed to overthrow the Romans from a cross? That's not working for me. You're ruining everything. 
This whole cross business. What? No, thank you. We don't want any of that. There's a clash between Peter's dream, Peter's expectations, and God's plan. But this is where Jesus reminds us who sits on the throne. This isn't an equal partnership. This is like, I'm sitting in the driver's seat. And you're not sitting next to me. You're back there somewhere. Like it's not an equal partnership. We don't, we don't talk things through. It's not how it works. But this is a trap that we fall into all the time. Yes, he's our loving father. He's our brother and our friend. But he's also king. Lord, master. That's what that word means. This isn't an equal partnership. He sits on the throne, not us. So he turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. That's incredibly harsh. I think he probably would have yelled it at him. You don't say that quietly. It's a bit weird. Get behind me, Satan. He probably yelled it at him. But it's incredibly harsh. He's saying, I don't even want to look at you. Just go somewhere where I can ignore you. That's what he's telling Peter. Go somewhere where I don't even have to think about you. Incredibly harsh. You're pursuing the things of this world. Your mind is consumed with the here and now. And if you want to follow me, then you need to know that my kingdom is about more than that. Jesus is saying, I'm about more than that. It's confronting. It's changing their whole way of thinking. A picture of what Jesus was here to do. His purpose. You know, as a prepping for this, it got me thinking. Because we read stuff like this, and, and often it's Peter who jumps out and says incredibly stupid things, right? Sometimes he says really great things as well, like, like you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But mostly it's just dumb things like this, where he's trying to rebuke God. It's, kind of, it's easy to read this and just to want to absolutely smash people. But I think, how often would it actually would that be us? How often do actually, are we standing as a hindrance to God? Because that's what he says, you're a hindrance to me. How often are we standing as a hindrance to God? Because like Peter, our minds are consumed with the here and now. How often does Jesus say that about us? But we, we just don't hear it. For honest... It's really hard not to get sucked in by the world. Really hard to not let your mind be consumed with the here and now, the things of this world. I was on Facebook during the week. doesn't happen all that often, but every time it does, it usually ends up in a sermon. Anyway, so I was on Facebook and a friend posted that he got himself a new phone. And by new phone, uh, I mean he bought himself an incredibly old phone. It's a brick. It's a Nokia 3310. Does anybody know the good old faithful Nokia 3310? Simon, you know it. You're like 60. You know it. Don't lie to me. He knows it, all right? He knows. Wonderful phone. You listen to me? Wonderful phone. They literally last forever. But they're not exactly smartphones. They don't even have a touchscreen. There's not a lot to them. They have smoke. Smoke? I meant snake. They have snake. You know that game? It's an amazing game. That's about it. That's all they have, right? My friend posted, he's got this new phone slash old phone, but his post was all about how he was surprised about how insecure he felt. He actually said, it's scary to think how much I relied on a phone to define who I was, and I had no idea. Got me thinking. 
You don't have to make a conscious choice to set your mind on the things of this world. We're bombarded by it every day. You take a step out those doors and you're bombarded by lust and greed, anxiety and achievement, selfishness, bombarded by consumerism every single day. And we don't have to seek it out. We live in that world, so we breathe it in. As much as we would try not to, we breathe it in. And that's why it's so important for us to get into the word, that we might breathe in something different. That we would breathe in love and patience and kindness and faith and surrender. That we would breathe in the things of God. I wonder how many of us actually are just completely consumed with the here and now, because all we breathe in is the here and now. I wonder how many of us are more like Peter than we'd want to admit. Because it is hard not to get sucked into the things of this world. And it's just another reminder that we need to actively seek out the things of God. We need to breathe in the things of God. Breathe in the word that our minds might actually be set free from the here and now. And might actually be consumed with the things of God. I want to finish. Not finish. I'm not even nearly done. Forget it. Verse 24. Like halfway through. Verse 24. I'm reading out of the ESV, by the way, because I like a couple of the way that structures the sentences. This is what it says. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Next four statement. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angel in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. We get to verse 24. Jesus has just smacked Peter. Brutal. Then he turns to the rest of his disciples and he wants to make sure that everyone is on the same page. I'm going to the cross. So if you want to follow me, you need to know that's where we're going. What it means. The door is open for anyone. I love the fact that it's an open invitation. But Jesus is saying, you've got to understand, this is a road of suffering. That I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So you want to be my disciple, you need to know that's what you're following me into. I mean, Jesus couldn't be any clearer. It's why it baffles me that things like the prosperity doctrine get any traction at all. I wonder how they match that up with this verse. What in this makes you think that if you come to Jesus, he'll magically make everything awesome? Like seriously, where does it say that? Why would we think that suffering is somehow below us? Jesus makes it so clear. There is nothing in this that points to a cozy, comfy life. He's inviting us to follow him into death. That's Jesus' invitation. 
Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Because that's what it means to deny yourself. It's not about me anymore. I'm living for something more. I'm living for Jesus. It's not about my dreams and desires. I've I've let go of all of that so that I might pick up my cross and follow. And even within that, you've got to understand that Jesus' invitation, it's in the present tense, which means nothing to any of you, but it just means it's ongoing. Ongoing. This isn't a box you can tick so that you can get on with the rest of your life. This is a whole new way of life. It's something that we do every single day. Today, I'm denying myself. Today, I'm picking up my cross so that I might follow Jesus. Today, tomorrow, the day after that, every single day, it's who I am. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, The cross is laid on every Christian because when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's Jesus' invitation for you and me. And if you're standing there thinking to yourself, man, why would I want that? The gospel's supposed to be good news. I just, I'm with you. I'm trying to listen, but I'm just not really understanding how any of this is good news. Well, Jesus gets to verse 25, and he gives us three reasons why actually this is amazing news. Three statements beginning with the word for that reorientate our thinking, that help us understand how this is for our good. He says, for what, sorry, this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the first one. Here's where it gets a little tricky. We live in a world that says that happiness is everything. You've only got one life and you live that to the full. You make the most of it by putting yourself first always. By pursuing your happiness at any cost. That's how you get the most out of life. And Jesus is saying, don't buy it. That's just not true. That's hollow and empty. Truth is you were created for more. That you were created to live and serve and walk with God. Because in Him, you will discover life. And life to the full. I want to break it down for you like this way. If my joy is found in other people's opinions... If my joy is found in my reputation, my standing, then I have to constantly put on a front. I can never be vulnerable. I can never truly let you in because if you get too close, you'll see how broken I am and my joy is gone. If my joy is in stuff, then I have to constantly chase more. If it's in achievement, I can never stop striving. And if it's in someone else, it'll never last because they're just as broken as me. Jesus is saying that's not life. You were created for more. Actually, that's torturous. It's a treadmill that you can never jump off where you're constantly striving, constantly chasing what the world promises you is right there, but you're never reaching. That's tiring. You would spend your life chasing after this. And yet Jesus is saying, as counterintuitive as it may seem, that actually life 
is found in me. That when you die to self and resurrected in me, you discover life everlasting. Second reason this is good news is actually just simple economics. Jesus is saying you're trading something that's temporary for that which is eternal. The best way that I think I could describe this for you is with this rope. So this rope, there it is, sorry whoever's book that was. This rope represents your life, here is your life, in the grand scheme of eternity. There it is, all the way down there. Keeps going. There's eternity. It even goes into a little circle, so you don't know where it finishes, right? That's eternity. Jesus is saying, you could gain the whole world. All of your dreams could come true in a way that you never thought possible. But if you sacrifice eternity to do it, what's the point? You haven't gained anything. You've sacrificed everything. What's the point? Jesus is coming back somewhere in here. Jesus, actually it's over here. Over here probably. Jesus is coming back. It says he's come back to judge the world, which means the way that you spend this little part right here is actually going to affect how that you spend all of this. All of it. And his point is pretty simple. Why would you sacrifice all of this for that? So that this might be just a little comfier, a little easier, a little more to your liking, a little more of what you want. That you would be free to sit on the throne. Why would you sacrifice eternity for this? And it's not going to give you true life anyway. But you're going to spend all of it striving for something the world cannot give you. And he said, you would be willing to sacrifice all that I'm willing to give you for that. That is stupidity. It is a blindness, the likes of which you cannot imagine, that you would sacrifice eternity for this. And Jesus is saying it's just not worth it. That actually, as hard as the call may be, it's for your eternal good. And it's hard for us to get our minds around it. That's why he's trying to reorientate our thinking. Here's what I believe this passage is trying to say to us. But I honestly believe that Jesus' greatest desire is to lead you into life. And life everlasting. Everything he does, he's trying to lead you into life. As he wants you to know that actually the secret to life is death. Death to self that I might live in him. Death to my dreams and desires. Death to the things of this world. The secret to life is death. And you can spend your days living to die or you can spend them dying to live. The choice is yours. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's counterintuitive. It goes against everything that we know. But it's just a part of the upside down kingdom of God. The last shall be first. The secret to life is actually death. 
We live in a world that's convinced that happiness is found when I live for me and Jesus is desperate for you to understand that you were created for more. That actually true life is found in Him and Him alone. When you live for Him, when you surrender yourself to Him, when you pick up your cross and follow, that's where true life is found. I want to finish with a quote from Matt Chandler. He says this. He says, What Jesus has done in this teaching is he's tossed a hand grenade into into your living room to blow out all of the walls, specifically the walls and the way of thinking, the way of living that says, ultimately, my push, my pursuit, what I'm after, and the lenses and the filter by which I see the world around me is in the interest of my own self. That really what matters when all the said is done is, is this good for me? Is this right for me? Is it just for me? Does this benefit me? Does this move me forward? That he's deconstructed all of that and our ability to think that way. The truth is, the world, the more that you make the world about you, the more anxiety you're going to feel. The more the world is about you, the more fear will exist in your heart. The more the world is about you, the more angry you will be. The more the world is about you, the more you will elevate yourself as the purpose. He says, I don't think anyone would ever say this, but the more you actually walk in the belief that you're the sun and everyone else of the planet is kind of just orbiting around you, the more miserable of a human being you're going to be. Now, the world would say, That's crazy. That's not true. The direct opposite is true. And it's actually one of the greatest lies the enemy has sold us. That if we just make ourselves the sun, that we'll find life and joy. But actually he leads us straight to our own destruction. That that is not, it's the opposite of where we find life. The cost of following Jesus is so high. But in that place of surrender, you'll discover that Jesus gives you what you couldn't possibly hope to find on your own. That he gives you peace and purpose and value and worth. That he gives you a joy and a life that can never be taken from you. Which means that you can get off the treadmill. Means that you can stop striving. Stop chasing after these things and actually just rest in him. That's why this is good news. That as we die to self we actually discover a fullness of life in him. Let's pray. Father, we know you are good. We know that you love us and that you're for us. We'd be lying if we said we always understood. And sometimes these things are hard for us. They're confusing to us. It goes against everything that from a human point of view says would be good. And in those moments, it comes back to trust. So I pray, Jesus, would, would you grow our trust in you? Prove yourself to be faithful, that we might take a step of faith, despite everything that our humanity is telling us, and that we might actually surrender ourselves to you. And we put our hope in you and pick up our cross and follow Father, we don't want to buy in to the lies of this world. That happiness is found here when we put ourselves first, but it's so hard not to get sucked in. 
So I pray, Jesus, give us the eyes to see. May we not be spiritually blind. May we not sacrifice eternity for the here and now. Give us the eyes to see everything that you have for us. The life you have as a gift that you just, you're just so willing to give. Help us to trust and surrender. We pray for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.